0: You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. This morning, uh, it's our second to last sermon in our in our summer series A People of Prayer, and we're gonna be in Ephesians chapter one. Uh, so if you have uh, a Bible, you can make your way there. Those black hardcover Bibles, page 976 is where you can find uh, that text. On many of the, the, the weeks that I preach, my early morning includes a prayer from an old Puritan prayer book called The Valley of Vision. Anyone familiar with the book The Valley of Vision? It's been around a long time, a book of Puritan prayers. Uh, there's a prayer in there written specifically for pastors before they step into the pulpit and attempt to give some kind of worthy testimony about Jesus. And among a a lot of really reorienting and and helpful lines in this prayer, one that always jumps out to me is a prayer that God would grant, quote, a feeling sense of the things I preach. God, give me a feeling sense of the things I preach. As you're probably aware, as Mallory was even leading us in liturgy this morning, um, there's a difference between knowing something in your head and knowing something in your heart. Uh, many of us are also aware of the folly of a life that is, that is dictated by our emotions, living a life that just chases around our feelings. As much as do what you feel might be a, a pop cultural nugget of wisdom right now, if you actually try to live that way, as some of us have, you know how confusing and exhausting it actually is to do that. But at the same time, all the knowledge in the world matters very little unless we get it into our soul unless we at least at times gain a a feeling sense of the truth and if it is the truth it should be impacting our emotions it should be making a a subjective difference in our daily lives not just being objective facts the puritan john owen uh, wrote about our need for both what he called light and affections Light and affections. Light meaning that we need to know truths about God. We need to know some of the substance of what God has revealed about himself. Affections meaning a a heart-level, soul-level sense of delight in God himself. Owen believed that where where affections outrun our light or our knowledge, that leads to things like superstition. Uh, It leads to experientialism, an addiction to emotions, a hyper-focus on experience regardless of the substance underneath it. And all the emotion, all of the affection in the world, ultimately is empty if it's not rooted in reality. But on the other hand, Owen believed that that where light, where knowledge leaves the affections behind, that this leads not only to formality, to empty ritual and things like that, that it actually leads to atheism. As one author put it, that Christianity without real experience of God will eventually be no Christianity at all. Christianity without real experience of God will eventually be no Christianity at all. Here's how Owen himself put it. He said, It is better that our affections exceed our light from the defect of our understandings than that our light exceed our affections from the corruption of our wills. In other words, it would be better for you and I to understand less but have a feeling sense of the truth we do understand than to have all of this mental knowledge accumulated but not be moved at the heart level by any of it. And that's from a Puritan, okay? Not like a doctor in light, knowledge, like this sounds like coming from the wrong camp. This, this is like a Philly sports fan saying winning isn't everything. Good, good sportsmanship matters more, Okay? It's like, they're not known for that. That's not their tribe, okay? This is not what Puritans are known for. Here's a Puritan saying, your affection should actually be a little bit more than your light. You should actually live with affection in light of what you already know. So we don't just need to know the truth. We need a feeling sense of the truth. And one of the best ways to pursue that is through prayer. In Ephesians chapter one, the apostle Paul, he begins to pray for the Christians in Ephesus, And at the center of this prayer, we heard it in our words of encouragement this morning, is this prayer that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. That they, by the work of the Spirit of God, would have a feeling sense of spiritual realities. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. Ephesians chapter 1, picking up in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us this morning. Our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray, I pray what Paul prayed for the Christians in Ephesus. I pray that even in these moments, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give us wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. I pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts even now so that we might know the hope to which you have called us and the riches of your inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of your power at work within us. And we pray this all through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. This morning, we're going we're gonna to focus on verses 17 through 19, and, and especially this prayer that Christians would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. Uh, that's an odd phrase. Okay, that's an odd phrase. Uh, some of us have been around Christian subculture for too long. Uh, if you're like me, you've sung the chorus of, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, like, several thousand times in your life now at this point. And so phrases like this start to become normal, but they're not, but they're not, right? And hopefully you know this, biologically, eyes do not have, or hearts do not have eyes, okay? Hearts don't, I, I confirmed it with our med students, they agree. Different organs, different systems, those are different rotations in the med school degree, okay? Okay. In scripture, and some of you know this, but we need to be reminded of this, the heart is used as a shorthand reference for the very center of our lives. The seat of our emotions and our affections. The source of our lives. The source of our being. And of course, the the heart does not have literal eyes. But what Paul is saying here is that in addition to the the mental intellectual knowledge we need, there is also a heart level, affectional knowledge. Knowing, there's a feeling sense of the truth, and our hearts need to be awakened. Our affectional eyes, as it were, need to be opened so that we can gain that that kind of knowing. And prayers like the one Paul is praying here—that's how we pursue this through prayer. It's the only way that can happen. Through prayer, God the Holy Spirit opens these proverbial eyes of our heart so that we can experience the truth, so that we can have an increasing feeling sense of it. And as you heard, Paul prays specifically that the Ephesians would gain a feeling sense of three spiritual realities. Three spiritual realities. It's not an exhaustive list. There are other spiritual realities we we can and should pray for. But these are really significant spiritual realities that we need the eyes of our hearts enlightened to see. So we're going to use the rest of our time this morning to walk through those three. They are a feeling sense of hope, a feeling sense of our inheritance, and then a feeling sense of power. Hope, our inheritance, and power. First, let's talk about a feeling sense of hope. And in verse 18, Paul prays that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Christian hope uh, is not a generic kind of wishful thinking. People use hope in our culture for a lot of different things. Christian hope is not generic wishful thinking, it is confident expectation. And here, Paul is rooting that confident expectation, that future hope, in the past reality of our calling. The only reason that that any of us in this room are Christians or maybe someday will become Christians is because God calls us to himself. There's, of course, what's referred to as the general call. There's a broad invitation for anyone and everyone to come and to put their faith in Jesus to find their life through his finished work on the cross. But Paul here is talking about what we refer to as the effectual call. And and he means by that that people become Christians because God first chooses them, God first elects them and draws them to himself. And then when God does draw someone to himself, he keeps them forever. Keeps them forever. As Paul writes in Romans, those God calls, he justifies. He declares them righteous. And those he justifies, he glorifies. He brings that process all the way through to its completion. And as he wrote in just the the verses just before the ones we were reading here in Ephesians, when God gives us the gift of his spirit, the spirit is a seal. It's a deposit, Paul writes, that guarantees our inheritance. It becomes fixed. The doctrinal truths of calling or election and of the assurance of salvation or the perseverance of the saints, as it's called, um, these are, as some of you know, these are pillars of reformed theology. And they are well worth diving into to study and to appreciate and to understand as much as we possibly can. What I want to ask you this morning, because it evidently is Paul's much greater concern for the Ephesians, is are these truths, are these realities giving you a feeling sense of hope? Like, are you just able to check the box that you've got the Reformed doctrinal stuff figured out? Or do you actually in your heart this morning feel hope because of this? Hope is a spiritual reality. As Christians, our confident expectation is that because we were called by God, we will be kept forever. Amen? We will be kept forever. As Dane Ortland puts it in Gentle and Lowly, we will be less sinful in the next life than we are now, but we will not be any more secure. We are as secure now, today, as we ever will be in the days of God's eternal kingdom. And that is meant to provide you and I with a continual source of subjective felt confidence during the years of our lives. Instead of hope, though, what what we often feel is cynicism. Cynicism. I want to just ask you, if you were to, just to chart out this past week of your life, how would your moments of felt hope compare with your felt moments of cynicism? Now you, you might be someone who calls cynicism realism, like me. Uh, you might fancy yourself as you know one of the smart ones that doesn't get kind of all riled up and hyped up with optimism. Uh, you might you might determine and call cynicism in your life a virtue, like you're able to see through all of the stuff that's that's duping everybody else. But if you're honest, you're just afraid. If you're honest and you're cynical, you're just afraid. You're afraid to hope. You're afraid to allow yourself to feel hope. Emotionally, and some of you know this better than I do, emotionally, it is so much safer to be cynical and occasionally surprised by hope than it is to live a hopeful life and be continually disappointed. And this is so interconnected with our prayer. It's so interconnected with our prayer because nothing will kill your prayer life like cynicism. If you're cynical, the last thing you'll want to do is pray, especially those big, Jesus only kinds of prayers that we were talking about last week. Those those kinds of prayers require hope, they require confident expectation that God hears and that God answers. Cynicism makes it way too risky to pray. It's far better when we're cynical, it feels far better not to pray or just to pray really small, personally attainable prayers. Cynicism kills prayer. And the reason that's so tragic is because actually prayer is the only thing that can kill cynicism. We need the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we may know the hope to which we are called. The question then this morning for you is, will you let cynicism kill prayer or will you let prayer kill cynicism? Will you let cynicism kill prayer or will you let prayer kill cynicism? Because because your life will be characterized by one of those two spirals. Either cynicism is going to slowly choke off and kill your prayer life. Maybe that's just where you find yourself already today. Or your prayer life is going to rise up and slowly, over time, put your cynicism to death. Which of those things is it going to be for you? Christian God has called you into his eternal kingdom. He sits on the throne of this world. He will complete all of the redemption that he has begun in Jesus, which means that you are invited to live every single day of your life with a feeling sense of hope. And if you appreciate realism, if you're a realist, that's realism. Hope is the far truer story of the world. So pray a feeling sense of it into your heart. Second, Second, let's talk about a feeling sense of our inheritance. Our inheritance. In verse 18, Paul continues that you may know what are the riches of his, in, of his glorious inheritance in the saints. One of the, one of the worst corruptions of Christianity in our day, and it's present here in the United States, but it's also been a major export, theologically speaking, of the United States, uh, is what's called the prosperity gospel the prosperity gospel. And in short, it teaches that if we believe in Jesus, uh, if we have enough faith, we will be healthy and wealthy. We'll avoid the effects of sin on our lives in this life. Suffice it to say, because we don't have time to do a deep dive on it, that's wrong. (laughs) Okay? That's a lie. It's a counterfeit gospel, which is not good news at all. It contradicts everything that is taught throughout Scripture, it also contradicts the experience not only of Jesus himself, but of all of his followers throughout history. It's, it's a fabrication that appeals to our desire to live a comfortable and suffering-free kind of life. Now, so we, it's a lie, but here's what I hope you see this morning. The fundamental lie in the prosperity gospel is timing. Is timing. Because through Jesus, there is a life of health, and even, as Paul writes here, of wealth offered to you, it's just not this life. It's your inheritance in the life to come. Now, if you've been around this church for for any period of time, I hope that the lie of the prosperity gospel is is a more obvious one to you. It's It's a different message, and hopefully that's evident, than the one that we proclaim, the one that we teach here. And on top of that, like my 15-year-old Toyota and reasonably sensibly priced sneakers, like they make me a terrible, uncompelling prosperity preacher. Like I just don't fit well in that, in that tribe. It's not my, not my vibe, okay? So we're not prosperity gospel peddlers, but the question for you and me, for those of us in this room is, do we actually know the riches? Do we know the wealth, the prosperity of our future inheritance? Do we have a feeling sense that there is a day coming where all of the wealth and health of the kingdom of God will be given to us and where that actually will be our experienced reality? See, Christian, son or daughter of the living God, regardless of your economic condition this morning, regardless of the the balance in your bank account today, you are wealthy in the only way that matters. Your inheritance is found in the God of all wealth. In the God who created the universe. Waiting for you there is, as the Apostle Peter puts it, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. In 1 Corinthians, Paul, quoting the prophet Isaiah, says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And Paul has just written that, that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee Of this inheritance, it is locked in. It is secured by God the Spirit. And you might know this. You know, we might know that. But until we have a a feeling sense of our inheritance, we will live like eternally poor people instead of the eternally wealthy people that God has made us. Now, what does that look like? What does it look like? I suppose living like an eternally poor person could look like a lot of different things, but a primary way that we live like someone that doesn't have an inheritance, like someone who is eternally poor, is by our discontentment and our dissatisfaction. Discontentment and dissatisfaction. We complain about the stuff we don't have. We wallow in self-pity about how much nicer someone's relationship is, someone's house is, their stuff is. We envy and we covet. So what does it look like? What does it feel like the eternal to be eternally poor? Well, it kind of feels like what you feel like when you watch HGTV. <laughs> no, maybe not you. Me. Uh, or social media. When you scroll through social media, like you see that stuff and you start to envy and covet. You start to feel dissatisfied, discontent in what you have. That's what living like an eternally poor person feels like. What if, instead of self-pity you began to feel actual pity, compassion for others. Compassion because, get this, the best life they can conceive of is one that's offered to them through a new house or a car or a vacation or whatever. And what if instead of discontentment, seeing someone else's stuff only fueled more your anticipation of the inheritance that has been guaranteed by the Spirit of God? If somebody's life If somebody's stuff looks amazing, well, how much more amazing will the riches of God's inheritance be? How much more? As Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, we cannot conceive of it. We are accustomed to a world of sin and to death and decay. There is decay and pollution in everything in this world. We are subject to illness and old age and so on, but not there. Incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away there will be no sorrow there no tears no sin no separation nothing that makes us unhappy and depresses us the riches of the glory of his inheritance and see if if you know that that's what's coming if you know the inheritance that is secured for you through Jesus it frees you to be radically content Radically content. You don't have to keep grasping at everything, any, anything and everything in this life for a sense of satisfaction if you have a feeling sense of your inheritance in the life to come. And prayer is how this becomes not merely a doctrinal truth, but a, a feeling sense, a felt sense. It's the, ways, it's the way that our, the eyes of our hearts are enlightened, the ways that our, the eyes of our hearts are opened and reopened so that we can see reality. So pray for eyes to see it. Pray for a feeling sense of your inheritance. And then third, pray for a feeling sense of power. Paul rounds out this part of his prayer in verse 19, praying that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. We talked a little bit last week about power. It's a recurring theme of Paul's letters and especially Ephesians. But he's saying here in chapter 1 that, that God's power is already working in the life of a Christian. Right? God's power, that, that's how we have faith to believe and to enter into the kingdom of God. It's how our hard hearts of stone get ripped out of us and new soft hearts of flesh get put in. It's how we become and then how we live out this identity we are given as new creations in Christ. But Paul here is praying for a feeling sense of that power that we would not only acknowledge God's power as a fact, but that we would feel it in our hearts at the core of our being, that we would, that we would experience the power of God as a daily spiritual reality. And so I just would invite you to consider where do you need to experience that power in your life right now? Where do you need to experience it? Maybe for you, it's to fight that, that ongoing, besetting sin in your life and even this past week you know you've been back again to something that you committed to never continue in and you fought through maybe even this morning you fought through the shame of saying like I don't even want to go to church but you fought through it and I'm so glad you did and you're here but now you're aware that that no power or exertion of your own because you've tried some stuff already on your own you've tried No power or exertion of your own is going to put that to death. You're going to need the power of God to be brought to bear in that thing in your life. Maybe for you, it's power from God to endure suffering. Whether that's physical health or whether that's job related or whether that's relationship related. The circumstances of life right now are are overwhelming and you're just feeling crushed by them you need a feeling sense of the power of God brought to bear in your life just to make it through, just to walk through any, any given day. All of us certainly need this power brought to bear in the spiritual warfare that's, that's playing out around us at all times, whether we see it or not, whether we're aware of it or not. Unseen spiritual realities, it's another theme of Paul's letter and it's a place where we need a feeling sense of God's power. So we heard it in our scripture reading this morning. Paul writes in, a f- in chapter six that ultimately we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Our, our main quarrel is not with other human beings. It's with spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Satan and spiritual forces of evil, they hate the church of Jesus. They hate the mission of the people of God. They hate our marriages. They hate our families. They hate our friendships. So you better believe we need God's power in order to both perceive the reality of spiritual warfare and to withstand the the attacks of it. Prayer, again, is how we pursue a feeling sense of it. We ask God to enlighten the eyes of our heart so that we may know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. Now, in light of all this, here's the practical tool I want to offer you this week. Uh, And it might initially sound a little counterintuitive, so if it does, hang in there with me for a minute. But the practical tool is to combine your prayer with fasting. Combine your your prayer with fasting, with abstaining from food, or sometimes in in life, that's actually not a good idea medically to do that. So if it's not food, uh, some otherwise good gift of God for the purposes of, of deepening your prayer life, for the purposes of communing with your Father in heaven. Fasting, at least in the the Protestant church, is an often neglected spiritual discipline. And to be sure, uh, some people use fasting superstitiously. You know, like if I fast, my prayers count more. You know, it's like twice as likely to happen. Uh, Some people fast just as an empty ritual. Maybe you grew up in a tradition that you did a lot of fasting and just kind of something that's part of the rhythms of your life without thinking about it. Some people even use fasting to, to punish themselves. to to try to like pay God back a little bit as a form of penance, like I did something wrong, I'm gonna gonna fast now to kind of make up for that. All of those things would be the wrong way to fast. But none of that changes the fact that that Jesus, when he teaches his disciples, he assumes fasting as part of the Christian life. He says to them on the Sermon on the Mount, when you fast, right? Not if, not like if you would choose to do this, but when you fast, and he gives some instructions on, on how to do it. So fasting is something we should do. And fasting is is of great help and great value to our prayer life. Now here's where this can feel counterintuitive, especially in light of Ephesians 1, right? We need a feeling sense of hope. We're seeing that. So the answer is to deprive ourselves. Uh, We're eternally wealthy. You know, the inheritance of God's riches are ours in Jesus. So abstain. Uh, You have God's power at work within you, so make yourself weak? Yes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly that. Because just like we need to connect what we know in our heads with what we sense and feel in our hearts, if we are ever going to have a feeling sense of spiritual realities, we need to connect them with physical realities. And that's the whole idea behind fasting. When we fast, when we feel our physical hunger, it reminds us of our constant spiritual hunger for God. It reminds us of our need to be filled up and to be nourished with what only God can provide. So fasting will not change your standing before God. Fasting does not make God more receptive to your prayers, but it probably will make you more receptive. It'll probably make you more receptive to God as Donald Whitney puts it in his book on spiritual disciplines, fasting does not change God's hearing so much as it changes our praying. Fasting does not change God's hearing so much as it changes our praying. Fasting is this means that God has given us to deepen and grow our prayer lives. And combining fasting with prayer will help us uh, gain a feeling sense of these spiritual realities. It's a way that you can begin to sense hope And fuel the fight against cynicism in your life. It's a way that you can sense something of your inheritance and fuel the fight against discontentment. It's a way you can sense God's power at work within you and fuel your fight against sin. And fuel your fight against spiritual forces of evil. And fuel your endurance in suffering because, as Paul writes elsewhere, when you are weak, then you are strong. And it's the power of Christ that is made perfect in our weakness. So I wanna encourage you in the weeks ahead to include fasting in your pursuit of a life of prayer. If this is not part of your life, if it's never been part of your life, start small. Maybe pick one meal a month and fast from that meal. Use that time you would have been eating to pray and even to pray maybe these specific prayers for a feeling sense of these things. And I know we're just scratching the surface on this today. So if you wanna talk more about fasting, I would love to do that with you. Or find a trusted Christian friend that can talk more with you about what that looks like, how to maybe incorporate that into your life. But men and women, this hope and this inheritance and this power, they are spiritual realities. As Paul concludes this prayer, this section of his letter, they have been secured by the working of God's great might. And today and tomorrow and to all eternity... As Paul concludes here, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ascension of Jesus Christ and the rule and reign of Jesus Christ stands forever as evidence that these are not just truths to mentally acknowledge, but to set all of your affections on. So by the Spirit's work, may the eyes of your heart be enlightened. And in cultivating a life of prayer, may you gain a feeling sense of hope and of your inheritance and of the immeasurable greatness of God's power at work within you. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, our Father, we praise you for making your divine truth real to us in Jesus. And as we think about a feeling sense of spiritual realities and connecting our physical needs and the physical experience of our lives with the spiritual experience, nothing does that more than what we get to do now in coming to your table. You have given us this sacrament of your church. And we come to this table to feast physically upon the finished work of Jesus. This is the body of Jesus given for us, the blood of Christ shed for us, held out to us to strengthen us by your grace. And so we ask for our eyes to be opened even now to come to this table and to see the worth of what this is. We ask that we would know your grace Experientially in our lives by the power of your Spirit, even as we come this morning. Would you fill us up? Would you nourish us again through the finished work of Christ? And we pray that in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.libertyharrisburg.org.